October 29th, 1929 is commonly known as Black Tuesday. That's a, a, the day in which the stock market hit rock bottom, uh, inaugurating the Great Depression, which lasted for the vast majority of the, th- the 30s. I want you to think for just a moment. Let's just put our minds back in that time. And I, I know we weren't around back then, or most of us weren't, and, and so, uh, but, but take our minds back to then, or imagine a time similar to that if it were to happen in today's world. Imagine the guy who retired on October 28th, 1929. The day right before Black Tuesday. On that, that Monday was his first day of retirement, and all of his retirement was set in the stock market. Now imagine what it would be like to be that guy who had invested everything that he had, his whole life savings in the stock market, and then on that fateful Tuesday, watch it all come crashing down. Watch it just go up in figurative flames right in front of him. Can you imagine what that would be like? If you didn't have, let's say you didn't have a steady decline over a month like what was true back then in 1929. Let's, let's imagine it just happened all of a sudden one day you watch everything that you had worked for your entire life go up in flames. Can you imagine all that you worked to achieve vanishing right before your eyes? In our passage this morning, G- Jesus is going to take an aside to deal with the disciples. He's going to teach them about the kingdom of heaven. And he's going to deal specifically with the nature of reward as it relates to the kingdom of God and what's truly valuable. So with that in mind, let's take, let's take a look at our passage, which is Matthew 19, 27, all the way through 20, 16. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for My name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out into the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call those hired, uh, uh, oh, sorry, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. 
And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, he each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first uh, came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, though there are many complexities in this text, we pray for clarity. Pray more than ever that you would help us to understand what you are saying here in your word to us. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, speak in place of me to all of us. Put me on the pew as well. Speak to all of us. Speak to our hearts. Help us to understand it and actually apply it to our lives. That we may not only understand your word, but be changed in light of what we've seen there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week, I left off our passage at verse 26, which will briefly summarize what we talked about last week, but I left off at, at verse 26. In the passage last week, and the passage that I'm, we're going through this week, really is one long passage. It should probably be put together, but I decided to preach it on two different Sundays rather than preach it all together. And so what that means for us is that we're really kind of jumping in right in the middle of a passage. So just as a reminder uh, uh, from last week, Jesus is approached by two different people in those two passages uh, from last week. The first is in 13 to 15, where he is approached by a group of children. And the children are immediately met with sort of resistance from the disciples as they're kind of keeping the children at bay and pushing the parents that brought them out. The children are coming to receive healing or their parents are bringing them to receive healing. And they, they, children have no status in society. They have no claim to anything. And so the disciples are naturally kind of pushing them out so that they can't get to Jesus because Jesus has bigger fish to fry, so to speak. And so... But, but we find out there that Jesus actually rebukes the disciples. He says, no, let the, the children come to me. To such belongs the kingdom of heaven, he says. Well, then we have the very next passage where a rich man comes up to Jesus and he gains really unhindered access to Jesus and walks right up to him and begins a dialogue with Jesus. And he has this exchange with Jesus that would lead all of us to believe by his own testimony that he is a law-abiding Jew, that he's good, he's kept all the commandments from his youth on up, and obviously God has blessed him because of his wealth. He is, he's rich. And so why wouldn't we look at him and say, this is a man who is prosperous, he has been blessed by God clearly, and why has he been blessed by God? Well, by his own admission, he has kept the law from his youth up. And yet Jesus tests 
his law-keeping by challenging him to go and sell everything that he owns. Trusting in Jesus, he says, will, will, and following Jesus, will leave him treasure in heaven. When he sells everything he owns, he'll have treasure in heaven. And then as he turns and trusts and follows Jesus, he'll love God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind and strength. Well, this turns out to be the thing that he can't do. And so, we've just seen these two people, children, the rich man, they receive from the disciples this earthly treatment that leaves them where they, they are not allowed, the children are not allowed, the rich man is allowed, and yet the treatment that they receive from Jesus is completely the opposite. The children are welcomed in to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, and then to the rich man, he is rejected out of hand. When the disciples see that the rich man is dismissed from Jesus, it leaves them confused. How in the world can someone who has adhered to the law, as far as we can tell, and is clearly blessed by God, how can he be actually rejected? They then ask Jesus, who then can be saved? And so Jesus responds to them, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so what follows in our passage this morning is a, a short back and forth between Jesus and Peter. They're going to have a brief exchange. And this passage, I'm going, to, I'm going to confess to you, is not the easiest to understand. And if I'm completely honest, even after weeks of study, there's still questions that I have about this passage that I would still, uh, am still wrestling with and are still difficult to, to grab onto. But I think the overall point of what Jesus is saying here is pretty straightforward and easy for us to, to lay hold of. So there's two points that, uh, to this that... Where Je first, where Jesus responds to Peter, and the second, where he gives them a parable. There's a point in each that I want us to see, where Jesus points to the rewards of the kingdom, and what he says about the rewards in the kingdom. The first is that the re reward in the, of the kingdom is worth endless sacrifice. The reward of the kingdom is worth endless sacrifice. Look at the dialogue that he has with Peter here in verses 27 to 29. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for My name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I want you to think back with me to last week for just a second. Remember, I told you that the rich man, um, that, that Jesus told the rich man to adhere to uh, the second table of the law. We talked about, I talked about that briefly last week where he said, uh, basically, he gave him all the commands that are on the back half of the Ten Commandments. And then he summed it up by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, that, that we refer to as the second table of the law. And he, he tells him, listen, if you're going to follow after me, if, you're gonna, if, you, if you want eternal life... 
adhere to God's commands in the second table of the law, which is summed up by love your neighbor as yourself, since all of those commands apply to our relationship to other people. And the rich man tells him that he's done this. He's, uh, I've kept all of these commands. And in other Gospels, he says, I've kept all these commands from my youth up. And so then Jesus tells him to sell everything that he has and follow him out of fulfillment of the first table of the law, which is summed up with love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the man, as you'll recall, uh, couldn't do this because he had many possessions. He walked away sad knowing that this was what it was going to take for him to enter the kingdom of heaven, he walks away sad because obviously he has a lot of possessions. In other words, in spite of his initial desire coming up to Jesus and, and, and wanting to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven and his desire to inherit eternal life, the man's heart, the one thing it could not manufacture was love for God. And that's what we came down to last week, was the one thing that he could not manufacture was a love for God. And so Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to find that this is unbelievably common amongst wealthy people. In fact, he says, it's impossible with all men. With man it is impossible, with God all things are possible. That's why he says that there, and that's what he means. Now, it's difficult to really discern how Peter means what he says in verse 27. But it causes, Jesus, uh, it causes Peter to ask Jesus a question in response. And he, or, and he tells him, hey, we've left everything. So look, at, look at all the things that we've left. We have left everything. What are we going to get? What's going to be our reward? Peter is saying to Jesus, you know, everything that you have required of that rich man that you said it's going to be impossible for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven except like through a, cam- a camel through the eye of a needle. P- Peter says, hey, everything that you're requiring of him, we've done. Everything that you wanted this rich guy to do, we have done. Look at what we've done. So what's our reward then going to be for following you? I think they're suppo- we're supposed to read this as a bit of an arrogance to Peter's question thinking that he has actually done what has been required of this rich man. He and the rest of the disciples have have done what is required. the, The result is an attitude coming from Peter that would suggest self-sufficiency. Hey, look at our sacrifice. Unlike the rich man who is unwilling to do this, look at what we've done. So then, what would that mean but that God would perhaps owe us some form of repayment for the sacrifices that we've made for you. Now, before we bash old Peter here, which we're prone to do, I'm sure, a lot without considering our own heart in the matter, it's not as though we're always innocent of this kind of way of thinking, right? I mean, this happens in our hearts all the time. We, we think of someone who has gone through suffering or loss, and, and what do we say? Well, that, well that's a They're going to have a jewel in their crown. Look at how they're going through that suffering and loss. They're going to have a jewel in their crown one day. Or when we we talk about somebody who is just, you know that person that is just, they've been a Christian for so long and they are absolutely delightful. And they're just a person who when you look at them and when you're around them, you can tell they really love Jesus. Don't we speak of that person 
in terms of their reward one day being far greater than our own, oh man, that person, they're going to be closer to the throne than I'll ever get. They're going to be right there next to Jesus in heaven because look at how much they've sacrificed. Look at what kind of person they are. So we're not far from the perspective of Peter here when we think of ourselves or other people even as God's mercenaries who deserve some form of repayment for all the sacrifices that we've made. And you know what? Jesus doesn't actually disparage Peter or the disciples. The rebuke that he's going to give them, which he is going to give them rebuke, but it's going to be pretty soft. You would think it might be a little bit sterner, but, it, but it's not. He doesn't say, shame on you for thinking that. Get thee behind me, Satan, which he's done to Peter before. He doesn't do that here. In fact, he responds with something of a strange comment about the new world. And he tells them that, that the disciples are going to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is where for us, I think as we're reading this passage, it gets a little bit strange for us, I think we have to admit. And this is where the, the train can kind of come off the tracks a little bit because we start thinking about the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's hard for us to imagine what is he talking about and what do we expect of this world to come? And part of this is for good reason because when it comes to talk of what the world to come or what Jesus calls here the new world or you might have the regeneration maybe even in your Bible when Jesus talks about that or when he mentions that and when the Bible talks of that we don't really have a ton of scripture as to what that is actually like we don't have tons of discussion in scripture about it and when we do have things in Scripture that speak about the world to come or the new world or the new heavens and new earth, it's often, on our part, either misunderstood or completely ignored. And so I think it would benefit us for just to just briefly take a minute to talk about what Jesus means when He says the new world and, and set our minds really on thinking about what Jesus has in mind here. What is he talking about when he's talking about the new world? Now, first of all, we need to understand that what we typically refer to as heaven is not what he's talking about here. He's talking about what the Bible commonly refers to as the new heavens and new earth. We're talking about when it's all said and done. We're not talking about heaven where, we would, where our spirits, our souls would go when we die. We're talking about when it's all said and done, there's nothing left to accomplish. The new heavens and new earth, the new world, the regeneration has come. We see it show up several times in Scripture, to, to name a few here, Second Peter 3.13. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Or Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Uh, Romans, 18, 20, uh, Romans 8, 18 to 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation 
waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So if you have in mind, when Jesus is talking about the new world, heaven as the destination that you should be longing for, that's not the end. In other words, heaven's not our home. We're only passing through it. The end is when Jesus returns and renews all of creation, including the earth. As Paul says, the earth groans with longing for all of it to be done with, for the curse of sin to be lifted. And where Jesus not only comes and renews all of creation, but He dwells with His people on a renewed earth forever. That's what we're eagerly waiting for. That's what Peter is referring to in the Second Peter passage. That's what John is referring to in Revelation. That's what Paul is talking about in the passage in Romans 8, 18 and, and following. That's the new world that Jesus is talking about here. And so according to Matthew, and according to Jesus here in Matthew, in that day, the apostles are going to sit on 12 thrones around Jesus, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So what exactly will that look like? We really don't have much more of a description than that. But if you can imagine a reconstituted human society made up of all God's people, with Jesus on the throne living with us, what would his government look like? Or we might say, what would his cabinet look like? It won't just be him ruling on a throne by himself, but apparently he will have a cabinet of people around him. And who will those people be? Well, apparently it will include the 12 apostles in some sort of ruling capacity or judging capacity precisely because they have followed Jesus since the beginning. For that matter, everyone who has followed Jesus, he says then in verse 29, everyone that has followed Jesus since the beginning, or everyone who has followed Jesus at all, who is his disciple, and has subsequently lost things, has suffered the loss of family or land or whatever, will receive ample restitution and provision both now and in that same age to come. That's what Jesus is talking about in 28 and 29. I think this is the best way to understand how Jesus is responding to Peter. Peter seems to be thinking that the amount of reward that the disciples are due should be commensurate with the amount of sacrifice that they have given. Look, we've, we've given tons. We've been with you since the beginning. We've done everything that you asked. So that should mean our reward should be incredible in the kingdom of heaven. What will we have? 
So he's thinking that the more they sacrifice, the more they will gain in the end. And while it's true enough that the apostles, Jesus affirms, do have a place of authority in the age to come, Jesus includes everyone that follows him as receiving a hundredfold, many times over, in reward and inheriting eternal life. He seems to be making the point that citizenship in his kingdom will be a reward so great that the sacrifice you made now will seem meaningless compared to the reward that you get on the back end. In other words, you don't get paid back. That's not the way to think about it. Your return is so excessive, so gross in comparison, that it makes what you paid on the front end seem hardly comparable to what you get on the back end. Your sacrifice for the kingdom of God makes what what Paul refers to as, in that Romans passage, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory that is to be revealed to you isn't even worth comparing to what you had to give to get it. He also, Paul also referred to this as light and momentary affliction, which I know it doesn't feel like light and momentary affliction when you're going through it. It doesn't. And nor did it feel that way necessarily for Paul. But as he thinks about the world to come, that's when, he's, that's when his perspective is changed. That's when he sees what he's going through now as light and momentary. Why? Because the glory that is coming on the back end, it, it pales by comparison. Let me just state unequivocally here. We as Christians believe that when this life is over, life itself is not over. That there is life to come on the other end. And that it is worth giving up all the things that we cannot keep after death now anyway, giving up all those things if it means life on the other end. So the reward for all those who follow after Christ will be worth An endless amount of sacrifice in this life. The second thing about reward in the kingdom, he says the reward of the kingdom is a gracious gift of God. Reward in the kingdom is a gracious gift of God. Is that me? I don't know if that's me being fuzzy or not. I'm trying not to be. Um, Reward of the kingdom is a gracious gift of God. Now I want you to notice how this parable begins and how it ends. It's in two places. If you look in verse 30 of chapter 19, and then you look all the way down in verse 16 of chapter 20, he begins and ends with the same, really essentially the same statement. It's just a little bit different. But he says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Many who are first on earth will be last in the kingdom, and many who are considered last on earth will be first in in the kingdom. Now, in the case of the rich man that we saw just a, uh, last week, in the case of the, the rich man in the previous passage, he was first on earth, right? He, he has an abundance of riches, and forget about last in the kingdom. He's not even in the kingdom. He's out completely. And the children in the passage just before him 
were absolute dead last, right down there with animals on the earth. They are last on earth, and yet we find out that due to their most humble of circumstances, to such belongs the kingdom. They're first. They're, they get an immediate audience with Jesus, and he heals them, presumably. The last two groups, then, that we've talked about last week, they've illustrated exactly what Jesus is saying here. So not only are the disciples to not worry about how they will be compensated for their sacrifice, their thought process, Jesus is saying, could prove dangerous to them. They're thinking that they could earn a greater reward. They're trusting in their own self-sufficiency. But the notion that they could put themselves into God's better graces in the kingdom puts them much closer to the rich man than it does to the children. See, that's, that's what ultimately tells us how Peter is saying what he says there in verse 27 is because the way Jesus responds to him, the way you're thinking about this puts you much closer to the rich man than it does to the children. So he gives them this soft rebuke in this parable that God's economy doesn't work like man's economy. You're thinking about it in human terms, and it doesn't work like that. You're not compensated because of what you bring to the table in God's economy like you are in man's economy. So how does this parable go? This master of a vineyard, he hires some day workers for his vineyard, and he goes out into the marketplace at, a, at dawn, about you know, 6 a.m., and he hires these workers, and they agree on a denarius for the day. That's the wage that they agree upon. And then the third hour, which is about 9 a.m., he goes out and hires some more workers, and he agrees to pay them, he says, whatever is right. And he goes on about noon and about three, which is, a, about the, six, which is the sixth hour and the ninth hours, respectively, and he hires more workers. And finally, he goes out at about 5 p.m., which uh, the text refers to as the 11th hour, and he hires still more workers. So evening comes, which would be sunset about 6 p.m., or if you live in Tuscaloosa, about 4.30. And the, the, and the end of the day is the time in the law which you are to pull all your day workers aside and pay them their wage for the day so that they have food to, to live on for the next day. And, and so he, he does that, and he calls them in, and he pays them all a denarius. He pays them all the exact same wage. Now, this doesn't set well with the initial workers, the, the first workers who were hired, because after all, they have worked harder. They have brought more to the vineyard than these that have been hired in the 11th hour. And after all, that is the way the world works. The harder you work, the more you are worth, the more you make. That's how the world operates. And really, in a just way, that's how the world operates. Two people who do the same job, and one works longer hours, and perhaps even works harder, should make more. That's, that's just compensation for what you, what you do. It's simple, and it's just, and it is for the most part, the way the world works, or the way the world should operate. This is, it seems, where the disciples are at this point. Jesus is critiquing, remember, the disciples. And so it seems like this is where the disciples are at this point. They're hoping that the kingdom reward 
is based on the work that they've done. Why? Because they stand in a really good spot. They're the first to follow Jesus, and they have left everything. See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So the parable is illustrating, though, that their inclusion in the kingdom of God is not based on merit. And really, they should be glad that it's not. So there are at least two principles that, are, that Jesus is pulling from this parable that I think he intends for his disciples to see. And the first is that none of God's people will be treated unfairly. None of God's people, when, when that day comes, when the new world comes, when judgment comes, none of God's people will be treated unfairly. You will see, no one will be treated unfairly. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. Remember, he says this to the workers at 9, and then presumably 12 and 3 as well. He, he tells these workers that came along just a little bit later, but not in the 11th hour, whatever is right, I will pay you. He agreed to the first group to a denarius. That is a day's wage. It's a fair wage. A denarius is a fair wage for someone who has worked for you all day. And so in this instance, though, these people have not worked for him all day. They've worked just a little shy of a day, like half a day, maybe a little bit more than half a day. And so when he says whatever is right, which is what Jesus promises to pay them there, that should be less than a denarius. If the people that worked all day should make a denarius, anybody that comes after that, we would think, would make less than a denarius then shocker of all shockers, when he decides to pay them all equally, the ones who worked all day, especially during the heat of the day, complain because they perceive it to be unjust that the workers who only worked in the 11th hour make as much as them. See, they figured, they even say, it even says here in the text that they figured that since the last-minute workers received a denarius, then what were they going to receive? Well, they were going to receive, obviously, much more because they've obviously worked much harder. And then when they get paid the same, they begin to complain. Although, that is what they agreed to, which is what the owner then points out to them. He gives them this soft rebuke, and you can tell it's a soft rebuke because in verse 13, he says, friend. So he's, he's telling them, look, let's calm down here. I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? They're arguing on the grounds of fairness, on the grounds of merit, but they can't actually identify an injustice that has been done. The injustice is simply that he pays someone else a different wage or a, a, a better wage than they think that person should deserve. But that's not an injustice that the master decides to pay this one a, a lot of money. That's not an injustice. That's what they agreed to. So the first received precisely what they agreed to, so he has done no injustice to them. So Jesus is driving home the point that no one who receives reward in the kingdom could ever say that they are being treated unfairly. However, one other thing that we also see in this parable is that God's people will also not be treated fairly. God's people will also not be treated fairly. As I said, Jesus brackets this with the last will be first and the first will be last. He's promising this dramatic reversal of fortune. 
There's going to be a sharp change that will play out in the kingdom. But it's not based on what the person has earned in, the re- in rewards of the kingdom. He's already told them, you cannot possibly earn the rewards that the kingdom will offer. The kingdom rewards far outpace anything you could possibly ever earn. No, he tells the workers in 14 and 15 exactly what it's based on. It's not based on fairness. You don't receive what is fair. In fact, he says in 14, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? You may also have there, perhaps in your Bible, or is your eye bad because I am good? So let me just explain that for just one second because that is literally what the text says. If you were to go back to the original language, you would find that it says, doesn't say, do you begrudge my generosity? It says, or is your eye bad because I am good? That's called an idiom. And do you begrudge my generosity is the translator of this text going, that idiom isn't going to make sense to one person in, that speaks English. And so it needs to be translated in a way that makes sense to the modern reader. And so they've done that. And when they do that, typically they either leave it in, will put it there in italics, or they will put a little number two up there in your Bible by the word generosity, and it will tell you, if you follow that too, what it is the original text. Uh, um, a bad eye is someone who is jealous or who is envious or who is greedy. And so he is literally asking him, do you begrudge my generosity? Are you being, being greedy here because of what you see someone else is receiving? So Jesus is making the point in this parable that the economy of the kingdom isn't run on fairness. It's on grace. Reward in the kingdom is on God's generosity. In fact, we don't want the reward of the kingdom to be handed out based on fairness. I don't know if you know that. I don't want a reward in the kingdom based on fairness because we are sinners and we don't deserve reward of any kind and if it were based on merits then every single one of us would be in a world of trouble none of us would actually get into the kingdom of heaven much less have reward in the kingdom of heaven do you want to deal with a holy god on the ground of your own merits i know i don't Yet I'm going to promise you every person that you share the gospel with that is not a Christian, some of which who claim to be a Christian, will tell you that's what the gospel is, that God deals with us based on our own merits. Friends, you don't want God to deal with you based on your merits. How often do you wake up in the morning with a lethargic heart? How often do you wake up and you're like, man, I'm just tired today. I don't read my Bible, pray. That sounds boring to me i don't really want to do that how often do you wake up on sunday not with with not one desire to come to church to to hear the gospel preached to read it to sing 
How many times do you wake up like that? Do you really want God to deal with you based on how good you are? I don't. I absolutely do not. And what he's being told here to us is it doesn't operate on fairness. God doesn't deal with us based on fairness, but based on his own generosity, his own grace. Jesus is telling his disciples that in giving, his, giving the kingdom to his people, all notions of wealth, of prominence, of power in this life, they're no longer important. They get thrown out. Your concept of what is good and what is blessed, it, 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 has, it doesn't have any sway here in the courtroom of God. As D.A. Carson says, those who approach God in childlike trust will be received and advanced in the kingdom beyond those who, from the world's perspective, enjoy prominence now. But this is the point of this whole passage together, going all the way back to the children coming to Jesus, isn't it? Your work in God's kingdom, it cannot be about doing a bunch of good deeds in hopes that God will be pleased with you. That can't be the foundation that your faith is built on. If your faith is really built on the good deeds that you do in hoping that God will be pleased with you, what happens when you do bad deeds? What happens when you sin? Do you, do you walk around and you think, well, yeah, I've sinned today and God must be displeased with me. If your faith is built on that foundation, it's going to fall. But this is what Peter seems to be wrapped up in all the way back in verse 27 of chapter 19. Look what we've left. Look what we've done. He's wrapped up in his own self-sufficiency, just like the rich man in the passage before, where the rich man says, what good deed must I do? So many Christians are going to live their lives, almost every day of their lives, just like Peter, thinking that God's approval of them is based on their own self-sufficiency. Did I have a good day today, or did I have a bad day today? Well, if our standing before God is based on our own self-sufficiency, I'm going to hell, and so are you. And it's a shame. It's also a shame that Christians would feel as though God is is really displeased with me. He hates me. He's mad at me. He's angry with me. And the last thing that he wants is to hear from me. It's a shame that people would feel that way about the God that they serve, about a God who loves them enough to send his son to the earth to die in their place and suffer his wrath on the cross in their stead. Christian, that's not true of you. If God has sacrificed his son for you, don't you think that he knows all of those sins? How many of your sins were in the future when Christ died? All of them. So what makes you think that God didn't know those sins when Christ died for you? Of course he does. Of course he did. And yet, while we were enemies, 
God wasn't ignorant of the fact that you were his enemy. He sent Christ while you were his enemy to die for you in your place. You don't have to walk around as though God is constantly displeased with you. He knows all of your sins and knew them long ago. And so instead, we can walk by grace because I already have God's favor if I continue steadfast in faith. So it's not about gaining His favor. It's not about meriting some part of the kingdom that He is withholding from me because I am somehow not worthy of it. That's not what we're talking about here. I know that the glory to be revealed to me will transform me from rags to the riches of God. So in, instead, it's not about all of that. It's about how much do I want my life's work now to matter. If I know, based on the incarnation, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, I know that there is a world to come, and that all of the world that is here now is going to perish and only few things will translate from this world to the next, then my whole thought process is now not about earning rewards or some secret part of the kingdom. My thought process now is, what can I do that will last? What can I do now that will translate from this world to the next? Do you really want to watch all the things that you've worked for in this life come crashing down to a halt? Do you want it all? Do you want to watch everything that you've worked for burn to the ground? Do you want to feel like that guy who retired right before the stock market crashed that everything you lived for in your life is meaningless? Is that what you want to say on Judgment Day? Or are there things that you want to do now that will last through judgment. Brothers and sisters, how much work are you engaged in right now that when Christ returns will be absolutely worthless? What petty arguments are you involved in now that when Christ returns will be meaningless? What sorts of things do you spend your time doing right now that when Christ returns will be meaningless. We have social media profiles that are a testimony to the fact that we can't use the excuse we didn't have time. We have ample time. Clearly we have time. What are you engaged in right now that is meaningless when Christ returns, that will not translate from this world to the next? Is your pursuit of wealth dragging away your heart's attention. Because no matter how much you acquire, you will stand before God with nothing. Have you become a workaholic, focusing on job performance and unending tasks at the expense of your spouse, your kids, your family? There will be a day when that job withers in front of you. Have kids and schedules and activities so overrun your family that there is little to no time left for family devotions, perhaps even going to church, or even spending time together. 
Have you so neglected your own study of the word that you feel ill-equipped to disciple your own children? Have you tied your value so closely to earthly success that investing in the discipleship of your children, which is not glamorous, by the way, spending time planting trees, as we would say, is not glamorous, and the fruit from those kids is not going to be seen for years to come. But have you so tied your value so closely to earthly success and success in the eyes of everyone else that that investing in the discipleship of your children or others around you feels meaningless? Like you're somehow less than they are. Perhaps we all need to have our minds shaped more by eternity. Perhaps the people that have said in the past, um, don't keep your mind on, on heaven, uh, that a, a, he- a heavenly mind, be heavenly minded is no earthly good, I think is how the saying goes. Perhaps that needs to be stricken from the record. And perhaps instead, we need to only think in light of the world to come. Because if we really are thinking about the world to come, then the work we do now really matters. Certain kinds of work really matters. If the work done in Christ's name is the only thing that lasts, then all my work should be done as though Christ were doing it. How would Christ approach that job? And contrary to popular belief, that doesn't mean you need to quit your job and go into ministry. Quite the opposite, actually. How would Jesus work your job? How would he interact with your coworkers? What hours would he keep? How would he interact with your spouse or your children? He would certainly be about doing his work wholeheartedly. There's no doubt about that. But he would also be making disciples in the workplace. He would also be sharing the good news of the kingdom in the work that he's doing. Christian, the work that God has placed you here to do, do it with all you have. Perhaps even you need to take up new forms of ministry, things that God has burdened your heart with that you want to step out into. Whatever it is that He is burdening your heart with, whatever, he is, whatever job He has put you in, work as hard as you can at it. But not because you're afraid that if you don't, God will be displeased with you. Do it because the kingdom of God is worth it. Because the work that you do will last Because Christ's name is worth it. Because in the end, only things done in His name will last. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what difficulty we have in keeping and maintaining the balance between operating in this world where there is work required of us, where obedience is required of us, where we must maintain faith, and also that we don't trust in our own work to achieve the rewards of heaven. Help us to keep that balance. Help us to keep that tension. Where we are both justified by grace And we must obey. 
Help us to keep those things in tension. As we trust evermore in Christ's sufficiency for us and less in our own self-sufficiency. May we then work in accordance with your will because we love you and we're called according to your purpose. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.